We make our way now to 1 Corinthians 13 as we continue our series for the love of God. The love of God is not something that we can simply talk about academically or theoretically. It is something that also must be experienced in the life of the individual. Even if we were to pursue it simply through theological means, uh, reading about it as we will today, as we define it, as Paul defined it for us here in 1 Corinthians 13, there still is a disconnect between the understanding of what those words means in which Paul is using to describe and to define the love of God and experiencing it in one's life. At 16 years old, I was a young man that was destined for a, well, let's put it this way, a very rough life. But God stopped me in my tracks. And if it weren't for a gentleman who I respected highly, taking a real risk, seeing the direction in which I was going, as I was dating his daughter through high school, he first and foremost required me to go to church with them. If I was going to date his daughter, you must go to church with us. I was like, great. That's the last thing I ever wanted to do. I did not have a very good experience with church growing up. My parents sent me to catechism, Catholic catechism, when I was a little boy. And I used to walk there and back. And I one day brought a little matchbox car with me. And the nun took it away from me. And I told her to go to the opposite place of heaven. (laughs) And she got very mad, and I had to walk all the way home. I was there literally for about seven minutes and uh, walked all the way home. I didn't have a really good experience with church. Then the second church we went to was a small little church, a Wesleyan church in Elk Grove, and my parents sent us with the neighbors, my, my sister and I, knowing that we needed something. And they said to us often, you need God, my friend. And they would stay home and read the paper and they would send us off to church. And, and I would go there. And there was something about this pastor. He was so kind and he was so uh, uh, approachable and he was so um, warm and welcoming of people. And there was something different about him and his family And of course, it was their relationship with Christ that was being instilled and that I saw within them that was very attractive to me. But of course, I didn't heed anything there, but I did like the coffee afterwards. Um, I used to put about a half a thing of creamer in there and then a half a thing of sugar and then a little bit of coffee and I was filled with the spirit when the time I got home, bouncing off the walls from the sugar high. Then later on, my grandparents, both were Catholic individuals, but then something happened, and my grandfather got saved at Moody Memorial Church, and he used to read the Bible to me, and he used to tell me about the love of Jesus Christ, and he used to pray for me. I I would hear him as I would fall asleep after he would read the Bible to me. I'd fall asleep there uh, next to him on the couch, and I'd hear him just whisper, you know, Lord, open his eyes and his heart to your word. Well, then, some years later, as I was dating this young lady at uh, high school, father said, you've got to come to church. So I came to church with them. 
And I was sitting in the church, who was a Calvary chapel, and, and the pastor started teaching through a passage of Scripture, and it just sounded to me as if my girlfriend's mother got to him first, told him all about me, and glory, and my angst, and my anger, and everything else, that I thought I was betrayed. And in the middle of the service, I got up from the back row, called the pastor a bad name, and walked out of the church. This is a true story. But I wanted to date that girl. (laughs) So I went back the next Sunday, and the next Sunday. And then one night, as I at home, her father talked to me on the porch of their house, and he said, where are you going? He knew the trouble I was starting to get into in high school. He knew that difficulties were surrounding me in many different forms. He knew that I was on the wrong path. And he really confronted me. He was a biker. He had tattoos on all of his arms, and, but he loved Jesus. And he, he witnessed to me in a very unique way. He grabbed me by the collar, put me against the wall and says, listen, son, I'm going to tell you something. You need Jesus and you need him right now. Well, I thought, great. I'm going to have to take on my girlfriend's dad right here on the porch. And then he started telling me about the love of Jesus Christ. And I started crying. Because all that I had seen in that pastor, all that I had heard from my grandfather, all that I had uh, noticed in the family in which I was attending church with, even the love of the pastor in which I called a bad name, they responded in such a way. And I knew the love of God was real, and he led me to Jesus Christ right there on the porch of his home when I was 16 years old, and my life has never been the same again. Oh, and by the way, that pastor that I called a bad name, he was my pastor and is my pastor and has been my pastor for the last 34 years now. I just met with him Thursday for lunch to keep in touch with him. It was he that saw that God was calling me to be a pastor. This is not some theoretical study that I'm talking about with you. It's not something just academic. It's not something that I want you to know and be able to recite. I want each and every one of you to know that it is the love of God through His grace and mercy that changed my life forever. But when we talk about the love of God today, we are talking through a myriad of distortion. We are talking through the voices of 10,000 people who all have an idea of what love is. We talk about the love of God, but we have to contrast it to the love that we find demonstrated within the world around us. And many, unfortunately, equate the love of God to be equal or to the same effect that the love of the world has. And I tell you that the love of God is so radically different than anything that we will find in this world. It's so superior in every single way. Today we have reduced love to a word that we use so loosely. We throw it around haphazardly. We use it in a manner in which it has lost all impact and effect. 
We use it as a word to manipulate people to uh, perform what we want them to perform within the relationship we have with, it, with them. It is selfish. It is self-seeking in our culture. And the moment we are no longer fulfilled by the one in whom we attach love to, we then tell that person that we have fallen out of love with them. And I ask you this morning, is that the love of God? It is nowhere near the love of God. This week I was curious to discover how someone who doesn't know the Lord would discover what love truly is apart from God. So I did what every other individual would do when looking to discover and to find out information concerning a subject. I went to the, the holy halls of the internet. And of course, as you know, everything is true on the internet. So I went to the location that I knew would be trustworthy, WikiHelps. And I asked WikiHelps, how do I know if I am in love? You would not believe the answer in which I retained. But again, I could tell that thousands of people had, uh, had accessed this information. It was a step-by-step process helping an individual identify if they were in love or not. And we are going to take the test in just a minute. But that being said, the comments afterwards were priceless. The comments afterwards were, this was so insightful. I can't believe the wisdom of WikiLeaks or WikiHelp or whatever it's called, WikiWiki. (laughs) But this is what they were given. It started out as this. Love is difficult to define, they state. How do you avoid, of course, confusing it with a just simple infatuation or lusts. Now, philosophers and psychologists both have attempted to define love, or at least the difference between love and infatuation and lust. If you are looking to find love, the following observations may be helpful to you. Here we go. How can one truly define what love is? Not even an experienced person can truly grasp or explain love to its truest and deepest meaning. Its concepts are just as never, a never-ending story of an open book of experiences. Well, that's good. But love does lie in one's heart, where memories are but shadows of lingering in your soul. Oh, so deep. Really? deep as a teaspoon. (laughs) Love is giving someone the power to break your heart, but trusting them not to. You are simply giving the other person the right to make their own choices without your disappointment. Loving is a choice, and it can only be real if it is given freely without wanting anything in return. So the first exercise in which they suggest is writing down what you believe love is. And so after culminating many of the uh, different opinions of what love is, this is the list that I came up with. Number one, it is simply a strong, positive emotion of affection or pleasure. Number two, an object of warm affection or devotion or liking. 
Number three, a deep feeling of sexual desire and attraction. Number four, a score of zero in tennis or squash. That's what they wrote. Sexual love found in sexual intimacy between two people. For, of course, today, many call sex making love. So after discovering what you have written in your list, they now say, let's compare it to some of these observational questions. Number one, please be aware of the moment whenever you feel love towards anyone or anything. This is the beginning of learning how to know that you truly love something. As soon as you feel some type of love, write it down, journal it. You go to Lou Malnati's, they put it on the table, you take it, oh, just got to write that one down. (laughs) Portillo's, you know. The second observation is found, think of reasons why you love this person. Is it truly love you feel or just a connection that can easily be dissolved? Is there something to gain that you might be drawn to that? And your desire for that is confused with love. So is there something you see in them that's drawing you to them? And you're confusing that with love? Now think think about this. Think about whether you feel the same way if the other person were were to change in their appearance and in their looks. Is it simply just an attraction? Trust me, everyone changes, right? There was a time, and you're really going to have to imagine this, that I had hair. Okay, you're going to just have to think about it. You know, God gives, God takes away. But, okay, if my wife said, oh, I'm marrying him for his hair, she's really disappointed now. <laughs> to help you discover if you're truly in love, capture your feelings in a metaphor, a poetry, or a song. I'm in love with you. <laughs> Now, let's let the psychologists help us define what love is like. Let's break it down into three components. Passion. There must be an underlying physical desire for sexual activity and arousal within the person that you love. Number two, intimacy is the emotional aspect, the closeness, the connectedness, the warmness of friendship. Number three, commitment. It is the conscious decision to stick together for, a, for the long haul. Are you willing to take that next step? But then they conclude with this. Ask yourself if love is forever. Listen to what they say here. This is great. No matter how much time passes by or what obstacles become present in the path of true and pure love, love will endure. Now, this may be far from reality, but many find it a comforting fantasy. Really? A comforting fantasy that love will last forever. Now, I don't know about you, but did anybody discover in any of those observations what love is? No. What they are specifically doing is allowing you to observe your own physical behavior and then for you to decide what love is in your life, making it relative to your personal experience. Rather than it being something that can simply be defined and therefore a benchmark or a standard be laid. When William Shakespeare was asked by a young uh, protege, what is love and how is it best described? And he says, Mr. Shakespeare, you have done such an excellent job in capturing it in your sonnets and in your poems. 
William Shakespeare replied to him, Son, nothing captures love more eloquently than John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. We live in a culture today that doesn't truly understand what love is. They don't understand what love is because they don't understand the God in whom love originated. 1 John tells us very clearly that God is love. It is a cornerstone characteristic of the God in whom we worship and serve. It is encapsulated in the person of Jesus Christ. It is found in the actions and the words in which he uses and the decisions in which he made and the compassion in which he showed and the grace and the mercy in which was displayed in and through his life. When Paul wanted to explain to Gentile believers, individuals who had not grown up in Judaism, individuals who did not have the privilege of having the backstory to everything that preceded the Gospels, everything that preceded the first coming of Jesus Christ, he knew that he had a task that was uh, truly daunting, to say the least. So Paul, in his letter to the church of Corinth, he wrote in chapter 13 what we believe is the definition of this word love that we as Christians can now look at as a standard and to say, am I truly loving the way God would have me to love? For remember, as we had stated last week, Jesus told his disciples that he desired that they love one another as he had loved them. Previous to that, the standard was found in the Old Testament that you should love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus Christ was now removing that element of neighbor even and inserting himself. I want you to love others as I have loved you, not simply the way you love yourself, but now I want you to love others in the manner in which I have loved you. So he's setting the bar really high, and Paul knew that that bar must be explained to those Gentile believers who had no idea of the backstory. And so he wrote 1 Corinthians 13. Now, in the brilliance of the inspiration of the Spirit behind the Word of God, Paul the Apostle saw that this was the perfect place to address this issue. For just as we today in America have such a difficulty in defining what love truly is, and I believe it's an impossibility to do apart from God, you can look at it from a physiological issue, that it's simply a release of chemicals within the body from endorphins and hormones, etc., to an idealistic Uh, idea of love that some philosopher has stated through the centuries and so forth. But defining love or looking at love apart from God, I believe, is truly an impossibility because God is love, as the scripture says. To understand love, I must understand God. And so that's what we're attempting to do today, to understand love by understanding who God is. Now, as we look at this, we find ourselves in Corinth. And Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church because, well, frankly, it was a mess. Though they had an abundance of spiritual gifts active within the church, and it appeared that the Spirit was moving mightily, Paul identifies within them, within the hearts of the individuals there in Corinth, that they were in a carnal state before God. They were in an immature state before God. 
For there were divisions, there was boasting, there was pride, there was schisms amongst the body there within Corinth that all needed to be addressed, and he does address from chapters 1 to chapters 11 in 1 Corinthians. That being said, Paul now needed to show them a more excellent way of interacting with one another. Spiritual gifts can be a real benefit to the body of Christ. However, though, Paul will make it clear that in the light of spiritual gifts, love must be the driving force behind him. Even if an individual, Paul will say, has all faith and all knowledge, but has not love, it means nothing, Paul will say. But the Corinthians, they had a difficulty with love. The Greeks had several words to describe love within their culture. Greek was the language spoke in the city of Corinth when Paul wrote this letter to them. He wrote it in Greek. He knew that when he were, were to, if he were to talk about love to them, that he would have to define it for them because they would filter it through uh, the, their own vocabulary and their own personal cultural understanding and therefore miss the meaning altogether if they didn't rightly define it as Paul would want them to define it. The word for love that was most used there in Corinth was the Greek word eros. For in Corinth there was a temple. The the temple there in Corinth, it was the center of the entire community. And it was a temple to the Roman god Venus who they called Aphrodite. And Aphrodite was worshipped in manners of sexual immorality. Pagan observations of worship to Aphrodite often manifested themselves in orgies. And they would say that this is an example of love. The Greeks were obsessed with sex. And as a result, love became tainted. The understanding of love became distorted because such a high emphasis of physical intimacy amongst that culture and community had risen to an epidemic level, and therefore love was looked at through those lenses. And often if someone heard that love was being used, they would hear the word eros, and they would know that it's an exotic type of love. Well, it sounds a little bit like America today, doesn't it? Where so many individuals are so misled to think that Sex is the climax of love. That this is it. That there's nothing more to it. And yet, the Bible says there's much more to it. So Paul, writing to these people in that culture that had that vocabulary within their mind, he needed now to supersede that. He needed to get past that. And so he spells it out for them. He articulates it in such a way that they would understand what love is and what love is not. But he also wanted to bring the newly found church there in Corinth into a position of unity. And how is he going to get past immaturity? How is he going to get past their pride? How is he going to get past the the schisms and the divisions within the church? He was going to teach them to love one another. 
and allow that love to have their that perfect work of unity amongst them. It's brilliant when you think about it. For we find that the Bible clearly teaches that Christ looked at love as a mature element of an individual's life. If you want to see a mature Christian, find the Christian who loves like Christ loves. That seems to be the standard in which Paul is raising to the surface. And as we begin here in 1 Corinthians 13 with a little bit of the background... When we come to chapter 12, he now lists for the church the different spiritual gifts and how they operate within the body of Christ. But then he gives this uh, parathetical passage. But he says, I want to address this with you. I want, I want you to keep this in mind, apparently he's saying. And he begins in verse 1 of chapter 13, if you'll read there with me. He says, though if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Oratory was the chief form of communication and entertainment in the Greek and Roman culture. Many individuals, because of their oratory skills, were you know, seen as celebrities, individuals to be celebrated within that culture, within that society. Paul is not only making the case here that if I, were could, if I could speak with the tongues of men, and he's also referring to the gift of tongues. Tongues here means languages, the various languages in which men speak. If I could speak them all, if I could even speak the tongues of angels. Now, some believe that he is just speaking hyperbole. Others here believe that there are, there is an angelic language that is spoken uh, by the angels. And, but Paul is saying this, if I had such the ability to be such an orator amongst the society, and in the presence of God, I could communicate him in such a way that I could speak with any language of man, and even to the point of speaking in the language of angels, many would perceive him as being someone important and someone to celebrate, someone of authority and notoriety within the church. But watch what Paul says next. But if I have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. The chief element made in Corinth was bronze. And the theater was lined on either side with huge uh, thin sheets of bronze to help the reverberation of the orators that were on the stage so individuals farther back could hear them speak. Uh, they would be used as deflections of, uh, of audio. So you speak and they would vibrate a certain way and they would bounce the audio, the, the signal, the wave farther back within the, con within the group of people listening. However, though, if the wind were to start blowing, guess what they started doing? They made all kinds of racket, and you couldn't hear anything within that theater. And Paul says, if I have not love, though I have the ability to be such an orator, I am simply a symbol crashing. It doesn't mean anything. The pagan gods were often approached initially by their worshipers with the sounds of gongs. You know why? To wake them up and to get their attention. 
Aren't you glad that you just have to bow your head and say, Heavenly Father, and he has all attention on you when you speak to him. Then Paul goes on in verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I, as to remove mountains but not love, I am nothing. If I had all the insight through prophetic revelation, if I had the knowledge of the revelation of God in, in, in its entirety, in its completeness, if I had faith that I could move a mountain, of course, undoubtedly speaking on the teaching of Jesus, but I have not love, what does he say here very clearly? I am nothing. It means of no value. It means of no importance. It means of an individual that you should pay no attention. I'm nothing. And then thirdly, we have gone from what he has said to what he knows and now to what he does. Verse 3. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, The religious leaders of the Jewish people admired rabbis who gave away all of their possessions. In fact, when Jesus said this to the rich young ruler, this was the precedent in which he was acting upon. It was something very admirable in that culture to give away all your material blessings. Did that naturally produce righteousness in one's life? No, not at all. But it was an admired act. And Paul says, if I do that... Or if I were to allow myself to be burned. Now, he is speaking of specifically more than just simple martyrism. He is speaking of that when a rabbi was going to be forcefully uh, defiled by someone, he would sometimes throw himself in the fire to be consumed rather than to be defiled. And for those watching, that was like the ultimate act of righteousness, uh, of separation from the world, etc. To sacrifice oneself rather than being defiled, that was what to do. But yet Paul says, even if I give everything away, and even if I throw myself into the fire as one who has done, look at what he says here, but have not love, I gain nothing. He is setting the standard. He is showing the Corinthian church how important love is amongst them. The question that would have been reverberating in the ears of his listeners and his readers would have been then, what is this love in which you speak of? It is this now that we look to define this morning. And again, as we look from verses 4 to 8 this morning, we will get an idea of what this love looks like in a contrast of what love is and what love is not. For love is patient. That word patient means one who is willing to suffer a long time under great uh, adversity. Some of your translations may have the word long-suffering that I think is more appropriate to describe the Greek word that is used here. But this love is also kind, and it is the kind of kindness, <laughs> the kind of kindness that is demonstrated through action. You can say that a person has a kind heart, but the only way you would know that is by what that person does through that kind heart. Specifically, 
you can, this love demonstrates kindness to people. Then he goes on to say, love does not envy. It does not resent another individual for what they have or who they are. It loves them purely, regardless. It doesn't take the the individual into consideration who's showing the love and their disappointment of what they don't have. Paul is saying that you love one even no matter what they have. You're not envious of what they have and so forth. But then he goes on, is not boastful. The proper translation here would be better windbag. One who likes to tell everybody about themselves. Have you ever been around a person like that? It's nauseating, isn't it? They're either a name dropper or they're constantly boasting, I benched 350 pounds in the gym this week. Really? You weigh 125. How did that work? A windbag, someone who is constantly boasting of themselves and their personal ability, loving one another does not do that. But is not puffed up refers to pride. Throughout the Bible, there's this word that is used called edifying. The newer translation saying building it up. This was a key component of a healthy congregation. Individuals looking to encourage one another and to build one another up in the faith. And that's what this love does. This love will allow you to walk into the assembly in which you gather each and every week and look to build someone up in their faith in Jesus Christ. Not to tear them down, but to build them up. Now the gifts of the Spirit were actually being used in Corinth in a way that was dismantling individuals. Some were being, pri- uh, some were being promoted as being uh, more spiritual than others because of the gifts in which they had. And Paul clarifies and corrects all of that in chapters 12 and 14. But love will do this pers- uh, permanently. If you love one another, you will look to lift up each other and build up one another. In verse 5, he says, love is not rude. Instead, love is courteous and considerate of other people. It is not self-seeking. It is not looking for your own way. It doesn't insist on your own way. And it is not irritable or resentful. It does not provoke another person. And this love does not keep count of wrongdoings. The word resentful there is, is very weak in my opinion because it's an accounting term in the Greek. It is a term in which is used to uh, keep a tally of. And specifically, keeping a tally of how a person has wronged you individually. This type of love does not do that. When it forgives, it allows to forget. It does not count up evil or wrongdoing. It does not, verse 6, rejoice in, at, or I should say, wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. This means that the love in which we have does not celebrate unrighteousness. There's a purity and a holiness to the love of God towards us. Though God loves us, He can still not interact with us apart from Christ because of the sin within our lives. He is holy and we are not, and therefore we needed a mediator, a substitute between us and God that's found in the person of Christ Jesus, 
100% man, 100% God, who came to bridge that gap between fallen man and righteous father. We, if we are to love one another, cannot love unrighteousness. Now, this is a huge issue today. Because if we say that we love someone in our culture, they are asking us to validate and to condone every aspect of that person's life, regardless if we find it wrong or not. But the love that God has for us and the love that we should have for one another does not rejoice in wrongdoing. When I say that I love someone, it doesn't mean that I have to condone or validate every aspect of their life. Specifically, if it's an area that the Bible completely uh, designates as sin. So don't feel compelled that when you are loving one who does not know Christ, don't feel compelled that you have to agree with them or validate everything that they do. In fact, that's the way the world loves them. The world will love them in that way, allowing for those actions or those lifestyles to flourish within that person's life. But we know from a biblical perspective that sin does not prosper a person, but destroys a person. So if I say that I love you and I rejoice in your iniquity, I am watching you burn from within. I don't love you enough to tell you the truth. I'm so thankful for that gentleman who took me by the collar on that porch and told me the the truth in love. It saved my life. You know, it's like talking with a person and having a relationship with them and you notice that their hat's on fire, but you don't want to offend them in any way, shape, or form. So you just talk about you know, maybe you subtly bring it up. It's a little warm in here. Feel a little warm? Of course, if you love that person, you're going to say, listen, your hat's on fire. We need to deal with it. That is the love that he is talking about here. Specifically, if you go to back to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5, there was an issue of sexual immorality in the church. The church was act- acting in a boastful way towards this sexual immorality. Paul challenges it straight on. And says, until this young man repents, ask him to leave your fellowship, that he may repent, and then once he does, restore him once back to fellowship. And he was restored in 2 Corinthians. Sexual immorality. We don't have to validate it. We don't have to uh, approve of it to say that we love a person as God loves them. But rejoices in the truth, and that is specifically the truth of righteousness. When righteousness avails, we can rejoice within that righteousness and we can celebrate that. In chapter, I'm sorry, verse uh, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things, endures all things. Bears means to endure. Believe means to trust. Hope means to look forward to something with confidence which is good and expect and benefit from it. Enduring means to bear up under great difficulty. And then in the Greek, part of verse 8 is found with the paragraph above. And then it says, love never ends. It continues forever, 
Fails is another good word for the Greek that is used there. And Paul is saying that where everything else will cease one day, love will continue forever, for all eternity. Why? Everything else, the spiritual gifts that are given to the church, are given to help us to understand God and allow God to work amongst us in our midst. But when we are face-to-face with God, then that is no longer necessary. And so Paul then ends this chapter in such a way where he's going to say, if I may sum it up for you, then I'll read it. It's time for us to grow up, to allow love to be the dominating characteristic amongst you. It is a sign of true maturity amongst believers when they love each other as Christ loves the church. Now, we here at Calvary Chapel are continuationists. We believe that the gifts of the Spirit still continue on today into the church, but they must be done in a biblical fashion, decently and in order, as Paul writes. We have other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ who believe that the gifts of the Spirit have ended in the beginning portion of the church, many believe around the time of Augustine. They believe that this was initially given to the church to identify the church as truly the recipients of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they believe that when the canonization of the scriptures came into play, that that was it. The spiritual gifts were no longer needed. And there are wonderful brothers and sisters in the, in the body of Christ who hold to that view. I respectfully and graciously disagree with them, but they hold to that point of view. I believe that Paul is not referring to the canonization of the Bible here, the completion of the Bible. I believe he's speaking of the return of Jesus Christ. When prophecy and tongues and and knowledge is no longer needed because we'll see him face to face and we'll know him as we are known. So he goes on here to say, where everything else will end, verse 8, as for prophecy, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Then he goes on, and this is where the issue of maturity comes into play. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways." I think our society has now come to the conclusion that there are many who choose to refuse to grow up. You know, it's, it's cute when they're one, two, three. It's disturbing when they're 25, 26, 27. And we're seeing that, where responsibility is shirked and uh, avoided at all costs, and they're continuing on in, in an internal position of adolescence. Paul's saying that it's time now for the body of Christ to grow up and to identify it with the most excellent way, and that is love. He's not diminishing the the importance of the gifts. He's trying to put them in the proper perspective. For the gifts of the Spirit were meant to be used for the edification, the building up of the individuals within that congregation. But instead, they were being used in in a carnal way, in a mature way, a prideful way, and it actually was having the adverse effect, the opposite effect upon the congregation, and people were stumbled because of it. Paul's saying, no, love one another as Jesus Christ has loved 
you. And then he goes on, for now we see dimly in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide in these three. All three are important, but the greatest of these is love. However familiar we are with the definition of love, many of you may read this honestly and say, I just don't know if I can do that. How do I love in such an unconditional, selfless manner? In fact, I argue, and I've written a paper upon it, that Paul is not trying to define a word that Jesus uh, resurrected, if I may. There was a word in that culture called agape. It was a word that was used very infrequently in the Greek language. In fact, if you read extra-biblical sources outside the Bible that were written during the time of Jesus Christ, you will find that the word agape is used maybe three or four times. The other words for love were used a lot. Phileo, which meant a friendship type of love, or eros, a exotic type of love. Uh, storge, which is a love towards an inanimate object, was used. But then there was this word agape in that culture that the Greeks didn't use very often. And when they did use it, they used it in the manner of describing a love that would move someone to give. That's the only times that we have it in extra biblical sources. And so Jesus used this word and redefined it by his life. And I don't believe that Paul is simply defining a word in which Jesus resurrected. I believe that he is describing God. He is describing Jesus. And many have used this simple illustration to demonstrate that by putting in Jesus' name where the word love appears. And you get such an incredibly beautiful picture of Jesus. Then that picture changes immensely when you put your own name in there. For Eric suffers long and is... I can't even get past verse 5. I haven't gotten there yet. I'm a work in progress, just like all of us. This love is a supernatural love that is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It, by us demonstrating this love for one another we are actually saying that there is a supernatural work taking place within us. When you head over to Galatians chapter uh, 5, you will discover that the fruit of the Spirit starts with love. And then, of course, it goes on to list all these other fruits. There are those who make the argument that each word after the word love is simply describing the first word. Love, looked at in this way, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, and therefore joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such thing there is no law. It's a work of the Holy Spirit within us. And as God is working in us through the process of what is called sanctification, he's bringing us into the image of Jesus Christ. He's painting a new picture. He's creating a new work of art. As we were born in sin, though we carried the, the uh, relics of the image of God upon us, as C.S. Lewis would say, 
It wasn't until we came to that place and Christ filled that, our heart and he resurrected our spirit that began a new work in us and we became new creations and all the old has passed away, all the new is now coming into play and we are a beginning of what God is not only going to do for us but for everything. God is in the business of restoration. God restores us because he loves us too much to leave us the way he found us. And God is working in your life. And that's why we cannot love others until we understand that God first loved us. He says, John writes, we love him because God first loved us. And if we're going to love as Jesus Christ loved, we need to love past ourselves. We are always going to get in the way of that love. We are always going to uh, fight for control of that love. But when the Spirit walks and works through us, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, but we will allow the Spirit to bring us into that conformity into the image of Jesus Christ where we can love in the way that God has asked us to love. And I argue that that is the most mature characteristic of a believer in Jesus Christ. This is no easy task. This is no easy task. And that's why it is such a high bar, a high standard. Many would say that the display of spiritual gifts is the fruit of maturity. Some would say that, you know, all knowledge is the fruit of maturity. Some would say the mere actions of uh, you know, uh, self-sacrifice is the image of maturity. But Paul writes that the image of maturity is love for one another as Christ has loved you. Again, this is my story. And as we close with communion this morning, may I just say that God loves you so much and demonstrated that love for you in a very specific manner. Many people will look at their lives and see some of the difficulties, possibly injustices and wrongs that have befallen them and say, how is it possible that God could ever love me and yet me experience such horrific things? That was a question that I had. But then God showed me that his love was demonstrated towards me in such a way that was so powerful and so unique, so sacrificial, selfless, abundant of grace displayed in an individual moment. And when I am tempted to look at my circumstances around me and to try to determine if God still loves me or not, simply based on those circumstances, you know, we go through difficult times as believers and sometimes we wonder, God, do you still love me? Do you still love me as much as you found me? Or now that you know me, don't you love me anymore? And God says, I love you immensely. Because God chose to love you while you're still yet a sinner. He sent his only begotten son to die for you. That's the way God demonstrated his love. And it's something that the annals of history, time cannot simply erase. That any moment that I'm feeling distant and far from God and I don't have that sense of his love, I just stop for a moment and remember this one fact. Jesus Christ came and died on the cross and on the third day he rose again. God loves me, period. 
End of story. It changes your life. It melts your heart. It makes you think in a whole different way and look at things in a completely different perspective. Paul said it this way, and I'd like to read these words to you as Chris plays here for a moment. I don't know if there's another individual who was so instrumental not only at his articulation of theology, but also his passion, his love for God. But he wrote to those who were in, in Rome about the love of God. And he stated this, if I may read these to you as we just now prepare our hearts for communion. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And then he writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine, nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are all being killed all day long, and we are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. And though Paul knew that they were suffering, and though Paul knew that they were going through difficulty, and from their perspective it looked like all was lost, he wrote this to them in conclusion. In verse 37, he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That settles it for me. Nothing will separate you from the love of God that is demonstrated through Christ Jesus.